a UGC ad will be 10 times more effective than an influencer ad when the influencer is a professional, established, brand-based person. People want authenticity. Consumers want authenticity when they look at videos on TikTok, Instagram. And the data shows it's clearly more effective. This week's podcast is brought to you by App Growth Summit. Join Uptick and hundreds of app growth experts from major brands, apps, and games in San Francisco on September 14th. Enjoy a full day of networking and 14 strategy sessions with leaders from across the industry. To request an invite, go to appgrowthsummit.com. Welcome to Games Growth with Uptick, a podcast about the discipline of scaling digital games. We speak with industry experts and investigate trends to highlight the strategies, technology, and tactical methodology to profitably grow your game to massive global audiences. If you're interested in learning more about us, visit us at uptick.com. My name is Andrew Gosta, Director of Marketing here at Uptick, and joining me today are my co-host, Warren Woodward, co-founder of Uptick. And our guest, Linda, CEO of Viral. Awesome. Awesome. So to have you on. Yeah, Alexi, longtime industry friend, mentor, colleague, a uh, veteran in the ad tech space, and he's starting something new. And we're really excited as he's sharing more with the world around Viral. We've really been wanting to do some more content here on user-generated content, and Viral is building some really cool new stuff in that space. So we're super excited today, Alexi, to dig in with you to the power of creator-driven and UGC content. It's something we've been doing a lot more at Uptick. It's something obviously you've been focusing on and something we get a lot of questions about from our clients and just teams we speak to in the industry. So it should be a juicy one today. Awesome. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me and excited to dig more in that. Well, let's just jump right in. For those who don't know about you, Alexi, can you give a little bit of background about yourself, what you've done in the past and you know what you're doing now, this new company? Yeah, for sure. I've been in the mobile slash ad tech space for more than a decade now. The first launched a company with my two co-founders. We built rich media ads and we built a rich media SDK in 2013. At the time, it wasn't as popular as today. We went through YC in 2014, Y Combinator. For those that aren't familiar, a startup incubator in San Francisco. We then got acquired by Addictive and we've focused on a retargeting product. Specifically, I've focused on helping Addictive scale in the US. Since then, I've left Addictive. I'm still on the board, but I'm no longer operational. I've invested in a lot of early stage companies, probably 200, closing in on 200 companies early stage. And I've also acquired a mobile app studio, which uh, I'm sure we'll talk about because a lot of the UGC topics that I've touched on personally have been through that studio, as well as launching Viral, which is purely focused on UGC content. Awesome. Yes, yeah, so you sort of previewed what we're going to talk about when we focus on UGC and influencer marketing and that whole spiel. Let's start by table setting. What is influencer marketing? What is UGC? How do they relate to each other? Start there. It's actually interesting because a lot of the people that I talk to have different vocabulary for this and different... That's why it's important for us to table set. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I'm glad. So the way that we use it internally, influencer marketing for us is the skill of working with authentic people that will create content and share it to their followers. Typically people with, you know, 100K plus followers on Instagram or TikTok or YouTube or any other platform, and they share product, my own product in their own words. That's what I would call influencer marketing. Whereas UGC, what we determine UGC to be is either organic content where people just love a product and they want to share what they think about that product, or people that are paid to produce content and they're not necessarily sharing it with their audiences. Maybe they're not even an influencer. They don't have any followers, but they're still very comfortable in front of a camera, in front of a microphone, 
and they can still produce good content. That's what we typically call UGC, either organic or paid, but not shared to their followers because they might not have any. Yeah, I think that's a good explanation, Alexi. And I think about it even more reductive way, which is when you're thinking about traditional influencer marketing, the product is really the audience that that person has and them leveraging that audience. Of course, they're using content to do so. So you can't really have effective influencer marketing if that creator does not have a notable audience. Whereas for UGC, at least in some of our testing, we found some of the most effective UGC. These people are not influencers at all. They just are engaging people that make really cool content that gets your attention. And then the audience, you leverage their great content and put it through paid ads, maybe on organic social channels that you own. But the content is really the product of UGC versus the audience being the end goal of influencer content. 100%. We have a saying internally, eyeballs versus content. So eyeballs, you're buying followers, you're buying exposure to followers. Content, you're buying the raw asset that you're going to display anywhere else. Well, so I was going to wrap it up and say, okay, in summary, it's this, but I think you guys both did a very good job of summarizing what it is. So I'm going to go ahead and skip that part. <laughs> Well, let's talk, I think most of what we want to talk about is on the UGC side, but I do want to just, before we get there, do a brief detour of influencer marketing. Do you want to talk a little bit about influencer marketing, how it has evolved over time and where it is today? Sure. We've spent, for context for anyone listening, we at the mobile app studio that I've acquired, we spent a few hundred thousand dollars per month on TikTok and influencer marketing. And kind of the evolution of influencer marketing matches what we've done inside the studio, which is we've started off with large influencers who have, you know, sometimes millions of followers, sometimes hundreds of thousands of followers, even potentially famous people. We sort of trickled down from the big massive influencer to let's measure what's going to happen if we share with people that have fewer followers. And so we trickled down to micro influencers, people with maybe 50,000 followers, 20,000 followers. And then it worked really well. Performance was still great. Scale was still okay. And we thought, okay, let's push it even more. And other people, other companies did that as well. Trickled down to annual influencers. We've worked with people that have a thousand followers, right? Which on some platforms like TikTok is basically zero. And yet, if you multiply that effect of having one person share to their thousand followers, and you do this a lot, all of a sudden you get a lot of share of voice on these platforms. So I think it evolved from going from being super famous and needed to be Tiger Woods to be able to do a brand deal to now pretty much anyone can actually have an influencer contract in place and share their content to share to their followers. Yeah. As you're explaining that, Alexi, I'm thinking of, obviously you come from a background in traditional ad tech and mobile advertising. And the concept that comes to mind is a very simple concept of CPM. You know, what is the cost that you're paying for a thousand impressions? And that it's not so much about what is the total amount of impressions that a particular content creator or influencer has. It's just what is kind of your effective rate and where do you get, it's a kind of a crass word, but where do you get the best arbitrage of that down the influencer totem pole of who has a really great connection with the audience for the size that it is relative to the rate that they demand as an influencer? That's a beautiful analogy. I've never thought about it this way, but if I start talking about ECPMs, my team is going to kick me, but <laughs> <laughs> they can stay here with us. No one is listening. Um, okay, so what are some of the benefits and challenges of using influencers versus traditional tactics like advertising and other things like that? Curious to hear what we hear from your side. Yeah, I like challenge. So one of the challenges that we faced through influencer marketing, the first challenge is more of the operational aspect or the human aspect. Basically, we've worked with countless influencers. I don't want to say the wrong number, but it's definitely you know in the tens of thousands. And 
it's so painful to get an influencer to follow your instructions and to follow guidelines and to communicate with them and to get a timely response that you do that times a lot and you get a meaningful amount of time wasted. On our side, that was a really, really big challenge, just three weeks on average for a lot of influencers to get back to us. Obviously, if your campaign launches in 10 days or two weeks and they're taking three weeks just to get back to us, then obviously that's really hard operationally. Right. Some people just went MIA. Some influencers didn't necessarily follow guidelines. We had to ask for back and forth. So it's just the operational challenge that you need to do at scale is hard. And the other challenge, and this was even bigger for me as someone focused on growth was, and like Warren said earlier, I come from the programmatic ad tech world. I like data. And when it comes to influencer marketing, there's one thing that is hard to grasp. And that's that when an influencer makes a video and shares to their audience, what you really measure is not necessarily the quality of the script or the quality of the angle that they took for your product. What you really measure is the relationship that that influencer has with a portion of their followers. Then we can sort of dive a little deeper based on platforms. But on a platform like Instagram, very follower-based, right? Your content is mostly exposed to your followers. You're really measuring the ability for that influencer to share content with their audience and how that audience responds. And if their audience matches your target demo, you're not measuring anything else. And so it's really hard for me to drive any creative iteration, to get any creative insight from influencer marketing. Whereas in the past from the ad tech world, we get, you know, 380 tests going on at the same time. And then the data will tell us for that target demo, we need that creative. For that target demo, we need that creative. That was really a big challenge for us on the influencer marketing side that we faced at every level, whether it's the big shot influencers or the small nano influencers. And we haven't really found a good solution or talking to other folks that are doing this. And that's the looming problem with influencer marketing. Yeah, it, it sounds like at least part of the problem is there's just a lack of feedback in the data, right? You have stuff like, you know, downstream conversion events potentially, but it sounds like there's just not the same granularity of data that you have if what you're working on is serving an ad platform where you have closer or had historically closer to perfect data. Yeah, I mean, I like to think of it as treating each influencer as a publisher and each publisher only shows one impression. And how are you going to optimize, you know, if, if you have only one impression per publisher, it's very hard or actually impossible. So then you have to start grouping influencers together and assuming stuff about their audience. And that's where it gets both tricky and unreliable. So you, you touched on two things, Alexi, that I think have a unifying theme and, 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 and something that I want to recommend to anyone who works with influencers. You touched on how hard it is to iterate on creative, and you also touched on managing these personalities or you know making sure that they're saying a certain thing. And I think one thing that I've had to learn and observe, and I'm sure you've seen the same thing, is like you're not going to get the best results. Part of the magic of influencer marketing is the way that a creator speaks naturally to their audience. And it's something that we've seen is challenging when we've worked on launching like a big brand title and there'll be an influencer component. And they're like, no, 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 we need them to say exactly this, 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 and this. Why aren't they saying it? Why aren't they saying it this way? And it's like, you're kind of missing the forest for the trees if you're coming to this person for the relationship with their audience and the sincerity, and then trying to like force something very scripted and in a specific voice that's not their own. And I think that's a big mistake that I've seen teams make when they're newer to working with influencers. Have you saying similar things? Do you disagree with any of that? No, I don't disagree. I'll add a nuance though. So an exact script to be shared with influencers, especially if you're buying that audience. We talked earlier about buying audience versus buying a raw asset. If you're buying their audience, certainly I don't think that they should be tied in a very hard script. The nuance that I'll add is that there are sometimes 
aspects of the product that you want to showcase as part of the launch. Great point. And you know when that product or that aspect of the product is your edge against your competitors and you want that to be somewhat shared on the video, that's where I would think that you should step in and ask the influencer to broadcast a little bit more around that specific feature or that specific aspect of your product. That's a really important point. And I'm glad you differentiated because not only are you going to have a good idea of what your strengths of your product are, you also have to assume that they're not necessarily going to invest a bunch of time into getting to know and deeply understand the product. So I think that philosophy of like, give them targets, give them bullet points, but don't give them a script. That's probably really where the happy medium is to get a successful outcome. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Well, you sort of just build us a natural bridge to UGC or user generated content. I really, we've been saying UGC without saying user, explaining what that is for the 1% of our audience who doesn't know what user generated content is. So we've basically been describing the process of using creators to develop creatives for you. This is a little redundant there. Can you talk about how important you think UGC is in the modern marketing stack? How important has that come to your overall marketing strategy using UGC? I'll actually answer your second question first, because in our stack, influencer marketing and UGC in general represents 95% of our spend. And that's on the mobile app studio. Most of it is, well, the vast majority is UGC related. There are a bunch of reports out there. So I pulled one, I think last week I pulled one where it had a few interesting metrics, one of which was, I'll quote the exact number. So two stats, 86% of purchase related decisions are made after seeing a UGC type video. And the second stat, which really baffled me was a UGC ad will be 10 times or 9.8, but 10 times more effective than an influencer ad when the influencer is a professional, established, brand-based person. Huh. So that's why for us as part of our you know core stack and sort of core marketing strategy is we've seen how authentic it can get. People want authenticity. Consumers want authenticity when they look at videos on TikTok, Instagram, and all the other platforms. And the data shows it's clearly more effective. So hopefully I've answered that part of your question. I'll at least give you my thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean... Those numbers seem incredibly impressive. I'm very curious to see how they got to those numbers. But I mean, even if it's half that high, it's still incredibly outsized importance. I'm fairly confident in the numbers. I would say give or take a few percentage points, but fairly confident. So I'll give my own hot take here because our team produces and works with a pretty broad swath of creative by design. And I never really thought about it until you phrased the question like that right there, Xander. But I would actually give the take that this probably won't be forever, but at this moment of time in like mid-year 2023, I think it's the single most important type of content for performance marketing. And to Alexi's point, that's something that we've seen repeatedly in our creative portfolios for the games that we work on is that if you want a breakthrough, if you want a creative that actually cuts your CPI in half, that actually gives you twice the ROAS or more, we've seen almost without fail, it comes from UGC. So you know, for us, like, okay, well, why don't we make 100% UGC in our case? Well, One part is like we buy across maybe 20 different channels, so it's not the right thing for every type of channel, but it's probably the most powerful thing in the biggest channels right now. And the other thing is it's kind of scary in a few ways. Like when we're building a relationship with a client, if the first thing we deliver is some super homemade UGC looking content, it's like, who the heck are these guys? Like, this is what I'm paying you for. Like I could have made this at home. (laughs) So both for that reason and also to establish a baseline, we'll often deliver more polished gameplay focused creative at first. And then once we kind of get that baseline, we'll go more into UGC. And the other thing is like, it's also high risk. Like if you make a creative that both looks crappy to be blunt, like, or it looks, looks, let's say it looks homemade 
and then it bombs, which, you know, if you're taking a risk with most UGC, then you've really lost the trust and, and kind of wasted your shot. So that's why for our own approach, like it is where we're seeing the biggest wins, but also it is nice to get a baseline, prove some more polished, deliver some polished creative. And then when you launch the UGC, you can kind of see how it compares against that baseline. That's a great point you bring up, Warren, because that's one of the reasons that I'm really excited that I did all these experiments as part of my own app studio is because there was no one for me to need to convince in order to drive those experiments because, man, those ads we ran, sometimes some of those videos like are probably number two most performing ad lifetime is someone eating a banana and falling asleep. <laughs> and, that, so, and, and then there's a continuation afterwards, but that was, that was the hook. I don't see myself going to any client out there and telling them we're going to do that and we're going to charge them for that. And I think it's going to take time before that gets a little bit more democratized, but that's why I've been lucky enough that I didn't have to justify myself. And we've made a lot of crappy ads that ended up crappy, right? And not performing well. So it's kind of a hit or miss, like you said, but I think it's in the hands of advertisers and marketers to own that risk and just to understand that, you know, you don't make an oblique without breaking X. And yes, you'll have some back creatives, but luckily you can limit the exposure of those back creatives and only scale the ones that are working well. Yeah. So if I think about my consumer habits now in terms of why you see these UGCs that are outperforming so heavily today, it's because they're the ones that are native formats for the social experiences. Well, I use social loosely, but the apps that are growing the most aggressively. So let's think about what are doing the best right now. TikTok, number one, YouTube shorts now is like the massive grower, driver for YouTube. Instagram reels is incremental growth for Instagram. They copied that onto Facebook. Reddit has yeah. videos like that as well as now. So basically, that's the native format. A native format is some janky ad at home with someone talking to the camera. And so I think one of the reasons why you're seeing these impacts so important now, to your point earlier, one, it's a moment in time, is because it's a native in the format that is now surging in popularity. I mean, is that yeah, you agree? I, well, I think there's a related piece to it, which is, you know, I feel like for years and years, there's been versions of pitched AI made creative that are doing some amount of like, you can upload, you know, 10 of your videos and it will mix and match and, and make you 10,000 different variants of it. So you can find the best converting. And the flaw with the idea of all of that approach is incremental changes give you incremental results. So if you mix and match like the same hundred video clips, yeah, you might find one that's maybe... 20% better converting than the other. But I can say as someone who's done tons of testing over the years, like you're never going to get a breakthrough that way. You're never going to get a breakthrough by, oh, what if we move this shot from 20 seconds into five seconds in? It doesn't, it matters a little bit, but not very much. But if you start working with UGC, some of that magic is you're going to get stuff like what you described, Alexi, with a person eating the banana and falling asleep. Like that's not going to come from like a seasoned professional concepting team at a studio. You need this like outsider thinking and this willingness to fail. And that's why you get such a breakthrough is because it looks like nothing else that that person has seen that day as they're scrolling through their feed. That's kind of, I think, the magic for UGC and why it's having such a moment right now for performance. Yeah. I mean, UGC has survivor, what is it called? Survivorship bias. Like you only, you end up only right. seeing the ads that work really well. Right. And so you're shocked at how that ad worked well. And there was no way in hell that you would have guessed that that particular ad would have done well. So it makes that aspect of the marketing stack really fun. You just get to learn and you're humbled by the platforms. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your theory on why it works? I mean, I think we believe that it's around, it's because it's an authentic relationship, right? People have an authentic relationship. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you see this as an important component of the ad? Sure. So there's another report that the earlier report I mentioned is the Stockout report. The new report I'm going to talk about now, more than half the majority of consumers dislike more than half the brands 
for the content that they produce of professionally made content. So the authenticity is obviously it's hard to reproduce authenticity in a studio, in a professional studio. When you do a 500k ad or a 500k video, you don't have that proximity. You, you can't relate to that person as much. And I think the key to UGC or the reason why that was unexpected boom is you end up with a ton of people that are very relatable. And where you picture yourself in those shoes, you're attracted to this, right? That's really what we've noticed at the very least on our side as why this all started happening. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. It's the right message with the right medium, the right technology at the right time. Yeah, I think another simpler way to think about why UGC is just so effective is like people just hate ads. People hate ads. I know like we're kind of in the business of ads, but UGC doesn't feel like ads. It's, it feels like content. So while everyone's innate reaction when they see something that's clearly an ad, this kind of goes to, I think, Alexi, your comment about people really disliking brands for the way that they advertise in this polished content. It's not an auto dismiss, auto close when you see something that looks like natural user content. Your default is like, oh, what is this? You know, rather than get this out of the way. So I think that's another very simple power of UGC's content. Yeah. And, you know, as we talk about the challenges of said UGC, I mean, it depends, first of all, where you're sitting, right? So I'm thinking, we talked earlier about if you're uptick and you're working with clients, then that's one position. And then if you're a direct marketer, that's another position. And then if you're TikTok itself, it's another position, right? So it depends on which side of the table you're sitting on, but I'm sitting on the side of the direct marketer. And so what's challenging for me and specifically driving UGC is the operational logistics involved is one. And we talked about it for influencer, but it's even worse for UGC. And really accepting that a lot of content needs to be not only repurposed, but also, you know, TikTok is very greedy and it's a very greedy yeah. algo. So it's challenging because again, coming from the programmatic world, if you find a creative concept that works well, you can probably milk it for six months, maybe twice. We've had some creators live on the DSPs for, I don't know, however long, but a very long time, probably nine months to a year. On TikTok, there's no way that that particular video will do well in 12 months. And it's the constant refresh needed for creatives. And like Warren touched on earlier, it's not just about changing that button, making a different color and small iteration. You need to completely clean the table, start fresh and do that every single day or every single week, however fast you want to move with your creative strategy. So I think that, that that's really the challenging part, especially if you're coming from the ad tech world or the programmatic world where our baseline is very different. I think those two things combined makes it very challenging, right? You have the operational logistics combined with oh, I actually need to manage this operational logistics on a daily basis to get right. new content. It's something that's a pain in the ass to do and you have to do a lot of it. <laughs> exactly. So it's like on the chart of priorities, it's, <laughs> it's up to very high. Yeah, it's a good point, Alexi, because thinking about it, there's these compounding factors of one is the algorithms of the networks like TikTok are very hungry. They'll find what works and they will burn through it. They'll oversaturate it and then it doesn't work anymore. And then... On top of it, this is a high-risk ad creation format. There's no guarantee that any one concept is going to work. So it's like you have these compounding factors that mean more than any other type of creative, just the pure volume of shots on goal, I think matters more than UGC. And I think we're aligned on this because I feel like this is some of the thesis around why you created viral and kind of the thesis and approach there. Is that correct? And is that maybe a good seg into talking about viral's take on the UGC space and how you guys approach it as a business? It's exactly why we launched this business. And I can 
briefly share some context, but like I said, I had the mobile app studio, which I still own. This was the biggest challenge. Like I said, it was 95% of our marketing stack was influencer marketing and UGC specifically. And at the same time, it was the most painful part of the marketing stack. So we started looking for solutions and we realized that we needed to scale this, but it was going to be painful to scale. We started talking to other mobile app developers. They faced the same issues as us with no clear solution in mind. And we started solving that solution on our end. And then we realized that actually there is something to do for other mobile app developers. And that's how Viral was born. So specifically, when I say Viral was born, at Viral, we created a platform where a lot of creators can sign up, basically play the numbers game, create a lot of videos for brands. And then we've automated the testing for those videos to play the numbers game, but also reduce the operational liability on the client side by automating the testing phase. And so we produced, I think our record month was 10,000 videos in a month. Pretty good. And to be clear, those are 10,000 videos without any iterations. So I'm not including any sort of, oh, we changed this button, that button. 10,000 unique videos in a month. And then we test those videos. And obviously it's a lot of work to tap them, which is why we don't want the clients to do that. And then we surface the best content and that content is then used by clients and by ourselves as well, because we're building a product for ourselves, essentially. Yeah. And of course, at Uptick, we really like that building philosophy because that's very much how we design, like all the tech we build and what we put our engineering team on is the tools and pinpoints we see. I think the difference, you just started a whole different company, but it was based on the needs of your app business and the opportunities that you saw there. So it's always, I think, a smart way to build when you're building a product that you yourself would need and use. Yeah, and I love the company that we went through Y Combinator with in 2014 was built with the exact same principle of we had an app. So my co-founders had an app and we had an app with millions of users and we built an SDK that allowed rich media in that app. Specifically, it was kind of our own lab that we can play with. And then here, the same thing, you know, history, history repeats itself. Uh, so it's definitely easier when you see your own lab because you can experiment without needing to convince other clients. So it's certainly faster. Yeah. So remember you told me what viral was, I think for the first time at GDC a couple months ago, and it was just like instantaneous as like, oh, that's a really good idea. Like that's obviously going to work just because to all the points we were describing, the ability to crowdsource thousands and thousands of videos makes tons of sense. There's a need from the creators. There's like so many people who want to be creators. So there's obviously an appetite there. And then how to operationalize the pain of sorting through the cruff of this is a good piece of content, this is a bad piece of content. It makes a ton of sense. So can you just really quickly, I want to double click on viral and explain, if I come to viral and I say, hey, I want to engage with you, what does that actually look like as a client of viral? It hopefully looks good. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> we, we work with mobile app marketers. So typically we would look at the app, what videos have worked well for you in the past, what videos haven't. And we have creators as part of our community. We have close to 10,000 creators on the platform. As part of that community, some of them are script writers and concept writers. And so they write concepts. Those concepts are then used by all of the other creators to produce videos. And so when we work with a new client, we just basically sign a contract, get the videos started. First month, they're usually mind blown by the number of videos, the quality of the videos and then coming in. And then as we go, it's just continuing that relationship, scaling to other apps and so on. It's a very minimal amount of setup early on, except for obviously getting your past history. So good videos, bad videos, and really understanding your goals. What are you trying to do? How much scale are you trying to get? But typically, the smallest client we have is probably 100 videos a month or so. And so that's where men and at, you know, 100 plus, like I said, we produce a lot of those videos monthly. And we just try to touch point on a weekly basis to see how the trajectory of the relationship is going. 
eventually turning into a, a self-serve access for them. Yeah. Makes sense. So in a moment, I want to talk about the future, but one more last question about viral. Of those, let's call it 100 videos, you do the testing. How many of those do you end up servicing to the client to say, hey, here's the cream of the crop. This is what you should operationalize and run your ad channels? It's it's a really good question. So it, it's really, it really depends on the client. We have, generally speaking, about 25% of the videos that end up being good, but good is not great. Right. And then the great depends on the client, how much scale they're actually looking for and so on. Generally speaking, those are the ratios that we see. What we're doing is we're building these layers. So like music is a layer. You'll actually, you'll actually, we talked earlier about iterating on a creative. So actually one thing I'll disagree with you, Warren, is we mentioned, and we talked earlier, I'll disagree with myself as well. We talked earlier about not building iteration for content platforms like TikTok. Music, however, has shown for us massive success. If you take a video from six months ago and you repurpose just the music backgrounds, and deploy it again today with a trendy music, chances are it will work well. That's really funny. Yeah, that's so smart. It also goes against like more mobile historical best practices, which is like if you're a mobile advertising boomer, everyone knows no one listens to the audio, so it doesn't even matter. But if you're Gen Z and your main platform is TikTok, then yeah, the audio matters a ton. But I think it's, I think the, I think it's the medium that people are using for the content, which is we're not scrolling on Facebook anymore. You're on TikTok while well, you're scrolling still, but it's a screen capture. It's like it's like a reward of video like experience because it's full screen. I think that's the difference. It's like you're not just like, oh, my mom's baby or whatever. You can't see I'm scrolling in the screen, but it makes sense because it fits the medium. OK, yeah. also, a lot of people are navigating based on music quite literally. And I find myself doing this every now and then where I like the video, I like the music and I'll go check out what other videos are made with that music. That's a way to repurpose content. But anyways, there's a lot of layer in the video, right? There's the script, the creator, the lighting, the music, and so on. So we try to essentially take as many layers as possible in-house. We build the technology to scale this layer adaptations, call it. And so ultimately, we can ideally repurpose pretty much any video, create new content, but also repurpose existing videos to have a constant stream of videos coming into the client side and scaling nicely. That makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, at the end of every episode, we sort of talk about, okay, here's a theme that we talked about, what's happening in the future around this theme, right? Because we're always trying to give future-looking insights to the best that we can make it up. How do you think about the future of UGC? I mean, we talked about how important it is now. I imagine we're in like a, you know, one to five-year period where this is going to be like a, if not the preeminent, a major pillar of advertising for the next several years. Talk a little bit about how you see that evolving and then what, if anything, is on the horizon that you see as a next major disruption to this segment. I like thinking about the future. Me too. One aspect of it is I do see brands, and that's only a subset of obviously the UGC future, but I do see high-end brands. So if you talk to a Rolex today or Chanel, unlikely that they will do a massive UGC strategy, right? They want to control the brand. They want to control and shape the image that they send out to the public. I do see those brands shifting massively and realizing that actually, if we play the numbers game, we can have a specific face for a specific audience and have 10,000 faces to reach the 10,000 audiences that we need to reach. So I do see brands becoming a lot more down to earth and numbers driven when it comes to UGC. But to be honest, I also think there's going to be an emerging platform. You know, TikTok was born out of this concept that it's not followers based, right? It's content discovery based. And if you drill down really on this content discovery base, I do think there's going to be emerging platforms that are going to be focused on AI driven content. And I'm excited to think that there might be a TikTok out there that only displays AI-generated content and maybe AI comments. I think UGC is going to go there eventually, where maybe it's three, five years down the line. We're not there yet, but I do think that's where the world is going. 
And, and we're going to be witnesses of AI interacting with one another and commenting one another, just like we're doing today, right? If you're logging into Instagram and you're watching a video and watching, you're reading the comments, you don't know anyone on the comment section and you watch that interaction. I think we're going to move into a world where all of that is happening just only full AI. Yeah, I'm very curious to see the thing that makes me most excited about AI. I mean, we talk about AI literally every podcast, but I think the thing that's really interesting is like how it will be possible for us to personalize your experience. I mean, we already have a very personalized experience on TikTok, but there's someone on the other end generating, you know, creating each piece of the content. And so I'm very curious to see how that fragments is. You have AI layered in there increasingly. I don't, I don't really know what that platform looks like, but I, I mean, we're, it's obviously going to be a, a major disruptor over the next couple of years. Warren, what do you think about AI in the future of UGC? Anything? Well, yeah. One thing I was thinking about throughout this interview is how refreshing it is because we're sort of, don't take this the wrong way, Alexi, but it's, it's sort of like in the face of all the trends around AI right now, these things will change as well. But just acknowledging where humans and human creativity still can drive massive value and capture an X factor that cannot be done by AI in its current state. And it's cool to see a founder building around capitalizing on that in the face of the current trends. And obviously there's ways that AI can be leveraged to enhance the efficacy of things like this. But that's, I think, what's refreshing about what you guys are building, Alexi. I appreciate it. Now, actually, I'll, I'll, maybe to end the podcast today, I'll share with you a small anecdote that we raised capital with Viral to invest in the platform and to really continue sustaining our growth on the, on the creator side as well. And every single investor out there kind of thought I was crazy. And, and, and I'm sure they still think I am, but in the era of AI, I'm coming to them and I'm telling them, hey, we've grouped a massive amount of, you know, an army of content creators around the world, and they're going to do videos manual. And they're supposed to invest in that company, whereas everything else around them is AI-based and automated and so on. And obviously, that there's a lot more that we do. And in the end, that's why I ended up investing. But I do think that however passionate you are about AI... There's one problem that needs to be solved first, especially for UGC content, and that is data sets. You need a massive data set. And then, by the way, this is why with that in mind that we built viral, we need a data set that's so massive with not only a lot of videos, but also the performance of these videos. That's why we've kind of built viral that way. But every investor I pitched viral to definitely let me with strange eyes when talking about content creation manually. Right. Well, it, it kind of makes sense in the context of like, if you think about Web3, you know, Web3 was the last big hype investment cycle. Turns out that, you know, it's a great aspiration, maybe something important in five, 10 years. Right now, it, it's you know, a lot of speculation and now it's a downtrend. If you'd been investing in more tactical technology over that period of time, you probably would have done better, at least in the short term. And it seems very similar to that concept right now, which is like everyone's investing in the long-term vision of AI. We're going to have a boom and then another bust before it really is fully realized. In the meantime, you can make money by investing in stuff that solves people's problems today. So it makes a lot of sense from my perspective. Awesome, Alexi, appreciate having you on the podcast. If someone wants to get a hold of you or learn more about Viral, where can they do that? Viral.io, Viral spelled with three A's. So V-I-R-A-A-L.io. And my email is alex at viral.io. You can email me or if you're friends with Uptick, you know, you guys can introduce me to anyone as well. So Alex at viral.io is the way to go. Awesome. Warren, take us out. Yeah, Alexi, thanks so much for joining us today. This was a good one. And I feel like every month it's a topic that our clients are asking about more and more. So great to have your insights here. Awesome. So as always, the podcast was brought to you by your team here at Uptick. Here at Uptick, we do all things to help games grow. We have a full stack growth marketing team handling user acquisition, creative, and the analytics functions around that. And everything in between having to do with ASO, consulting, et cetera, the, the hard work of taking a game to market. 
And we also build some really cool tech around that. We touched on that a little bit today, but if you either need great tools for your own team or you need a team to do that work for you, which is often not the most fun work and quite challenging, talk to us. You can reach us at uptick.com. It's U-P-P-T-I-C.com. But it's fun for us. <laughs> talk soon. <laughs>